The 2022 political field was intense, so don't get left behind in 2024. If you're running for political office, the first thing on your to-do list needs to be securing your name on the web with a yourname.vote web domain from godaddy.com. Get yours now. Welcome to another episode of Breaking Battlegrounds with your host Sam Stone, Chuck Warren, and I are apparently taking day alternate days off this yeah. month. Uh, but fortunately for for us, we have Michelle Agenturita in studio today. Happy to be here. She, Michelle is always fantastic, and another fantastic lineup of guests for you today, folks. Uh, first off, we're leading out with Paul McCleary. He covers major defense programs and acquisitions policy for Politico, previously covered the Pentagon for foreign policy, defense news, and breaking defense, and has embedded with U.S. forces in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Obviously, there's a lot going on right now. A lot of news focused around Israel and Gaza and everything going on there. Um but that's also leading to a lot of ripple effects around the globe in terms of defense, in terms of economics, a whole host of, of, of problems that are created when a situation like this kicks off. Can you talk a little bit about what's going on and how that's affecting uh, our defense programs and policy really globally right now? Sure thing. Yeah. I mean, I think what the wars in Ukraine uh, and now in, in Israel are really showing is that the, 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 the Pentagon gets $800 billion a year. They're what is well-funded. But there are some real stresses here that were being felt even before these wars in the defense industries, but as far as how long it takes to get new weapons and, and equipment under contract and things like that and, and how expensive they are. Um, and that has not been working out well for Ukraine as we're shipping billions of dollars worth of uh, weaponry. We've given two million, I think, um, artillery shells to Ukraine. And the Pentagon has been struggling a little bit to get contracts to the defense industry to replenish our own stocks for that sort of thing. Uh, Both countries are also using a lot of Israel more than than Ukraine, uh, precision guided weapons. And those are expensive they're kind of tough to make um and the u.s hasn't really ramped up production for those as much as maybe they would like to given that china is also posing a threat on the other side of the world um we're not in a war with china obviously but the dod is trying to increase production to increase its stocks for that while it's also giving to ukraine and now israel so there's some real concern on capitol hill and at dod uh, about how they're going to pull this off. You know, there's no U.S. troops involved in, in in these wars, clearly, but the U.S. defense industry is going to have to get on wartime footing at, at some point, and it's definitely not right now, uh, which is the new package that the Biden administration released on Friday morning, $106 billion for Taiwan, for Israel, for Ukraine, for the U.S. defense industry, for border security. Um, and that's going to try to get at some of this to... increase production lines, speed things up a little bit. But, I mean, there's no House of Representatives at the moment, so that bill isn't going to go anywhere. There's going to be some debate. Is there a whole, you know, you follow, obviously, acquisitions policy really closely. And I've wondered for a few years now if we have a hole in our thinking where 
our adversaries around the globe are manufacturing very quick, cheap, easy to manufacture weapons, um, where everything we have is very high tech and tends to be very expensive. Does the U.S. need to consider creating almost a secondary pipeline for you know weapons that we knew we've known how to manufacture for fifty years and things that can be manufactured and given into the field very quickly? Yeah, I mean the thing with DoD is everything that they buy is bespoke, right? Right. Very little commercial off the shelf, off off the shelf equipment and stuff, you know, and and so everything that they buy or they ask the industry to make is made for DoD specifically, right? They demand intellectual property, things like that. Um, so it is tough for them to do it quickly, and tough sometimes to even share that technology with with allies. I mean, that's been the case um, with Ukraine, with, with some of the, the weapon systems, even if, with Israel. Um, so, And we've seen uh, the Ukrainians, I mean, they're building small drones using Chinese parts and whatever they have, and they're being incredibly effective with it. Uh, the Russians have no answer for it. Um, but the U.S. Army and military would never do that in a million years, right? Right, <laughs> so gonna right. Build I, small parts, even though it works, but we're just not going to do it. Yeah, I mean, I it seems like our enemies obviously have the ability to wage war for a lot less money than we do, and a lot of it comes down to that sort of bespoke military that you're talking about. Exactly. I mean, the Chinese are doing it, the Ukrainians are doing it. Um, most countries around the world are doing it to some degree, and, and DOD won't. And there's a real push to try to change that. Um, there's a new program that the DOD announced in August. We don't have a lot of details about it called Replicator. Well, which is a great name, um, <laughs> where they want to build thousands of small drones that can be lost, that can be attributable, uh, where they can, you know, perform drone, drone swarms do surveillance, I think some kind of kinetic activity. Um, and this is aimed directly at China, because China's building these, these drone swarms and things like that. But there's a lot of questions if DoD can do this in the next 24 months, which, which they're giving themselves the timeline to do it. Um, you know, if industry's ready, if DoD will trust small, innovative companies who they don't have a relationship with to work on this stuff. Because this has been a years-long project where DOD is trying to get um, VC firms, small tech firms to work with them. Um, and they've had a real, tr- real problem with it because the overhead's low, um, the, or the payoff is low for these companies, and it takes years for DOD to do anything, right? They say, okay, this little drone looks good. Make five of them. We'll get back to you in two years. <laughs> and they will tell you if you want to buy 500 of them. And these companies say, no thanks. It's not worth their time, right? Yeah, we talked to a reporter a few, uh, maybe actually about a year ago, who was talking about this in a, in a different sense, that we become too reliant on just a handful of major contractors. And they're not designed, none of them, their operations are designed to quickly gear up to expand production overnight. Well, exactly. Well, this is part of, in 1993, I'll be quick about the history lesson, I promise. (laughs) Then Secretary of Defense Les Aspen called in all the major defense contractors for a dinner at the Pentagon, and it's called the Last Supper. And he told them, hey, budgets are going down. There's, you know, 92 defense companies, and some of you, we have no problem with some of you going out of business. So you're going to have to consolidate or die. So those dozens of defense companies whittled down to the handful we have today which creates less competition, uh, higher prices, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that was a decision made then that is, we're really feeling now, that all those smaller companies that maybe would compete or have new ideas are now, you know, 10 
companies, essentially. You know, Lockheed, the Lockheed Raytheon's BAE systems bought up all those companies. Um, so the, the policy decisions made, you know, 30 years ago are having a real impact now in trying to modernize and reform the system. Is, is America vulnerable uh, militarily with us being, you know, pulled so thin across all of these different uh, interests? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's an argument that the DOD makes that I think uh, has some merit to it that, you know, we're giving billions of dollars uh, worth of equipment to Ukraine. But what Ukraine is doing with that investment is decimating the Russian war machine, right? I mean, stuff that we had built in the 80s or early 90s to fight the Soviet Union is now fighting the Russians in Ukraine. And it works. It works the way they wanted it to work, and the Russians, a lot of the, for a lot of this equipment, don't have a good answer for it. Uh, and this is at the cost of, you know, the package today will be at sixty-four billion for um, for Ukraine. It's a lot of money, mm-hmm. uh, but no American soldiers are being killed. No Americans are being taken hostage or prisoners. So, the argument by DOD is that this is we're achieving our aims cheaply and without loss of American life. Uh, but still, like I said before, until and unless DOD and the industry can really figure out a way to get industry on some sort of war footing, um, it's not sustainable for the long run for the United States if this war drags on for, for years, which it looks like it, it likely will. It, that looks like it will drag on for years. And, it, you know, we, we've talked about that quite a bit on this program that I don't think anyone really has any idea of what the out-in out story is. Is Gaza different? Because it does seem like Israel is starting to very carefully focus on what comes after the invasion that appears to be imminent. Yeah, it does appear that the IDF will go in on the ground in Gaza um, and try to clear out the north and, and target uh, Hezbollah leadership. I It's, it's not clear uh, that Israel has a good day-after plan other than decimating um, Hamas leadership. Um, what comes next? Is it going to be an occupation? You have a couple of battalions behind. You create a buffer zone. Um, it's that is going to be tough, tough stuff uh, because the urban fight in in Gaza will be will be absolutely brutal. Um, and we, the United States, has done it in Najaf and in Fallujah, uh, and those were hard, bloody, door to door, literally room to room. Uh, knife fights and those, uh, and those are not as dense and the density no. creates additional challenges in that type of environment right exactly my sense of time in Fluja with, with the marines after the after the big fight and there's still you know some some resistance there but um just driving through those streets and you know taking over houses and and just trying to do that in a populated dense city is just so hard. I mean, every time you turn a corner, there's a threat. Every time you pass an open window, there's a threat. Um, and Hamas, I'm assuming, has and Islamic Jihad has dug in pretty well in Gaza. They're going to have tunnels. Um, and so this will be incredibly difficult for Israel, and it blunts a lot of their technological advantages, right? Things like drones and, and things like that, they'll still be able to use, but um, packed in so tight, those won't be nearly as effective as they would be on open ground. 
We, we have just about a minute and a half before we go to break. We're going to be coming back uh, with more right after that from Paul McCleary uh, with Politico, covers major defense programs and acquisitions policy, talking a little bit about, obviously, Gaza and Israel, what's going on in the world right now. Um, but also, I want to touch a little bit on Taiwan and China. And does this, uh, when we come back, does this create an opening, the U.S. involvement in Ukraine, now in Israel, potentially a, a pretty significant supporting of our ally there? Does this continue to make things more dangerous for Taiwan and increase the chances that China may look to take advantage of everything that's going on in the world right now? Um, and obviously, I, I want to give you a little bit more time than the 30 seconds we're about to have here. Um, but Michelle, I, I think it's it's not been talked about enough. What what all this various conflicts is doing to create additional instability. Absolutely. So, folks, make sure you stay tuned for that. We're going to be coming back from with more from Paul McCleary in just a couple of minutes. And then stay tuned afterwards because we have a very interesting second guest on the program, Dr. Judy Zasser. Zudi Jasser. I'm getting his name Another wrong already. Uh, but he has a fantastic background. He's just announced a run for Congress here in, in Arizona. It's going to be an interesting fight. Folks, stay tuned. Breaking Battlegrounds back in just a moment. At Overstock, we know home is a pretty important place, and that's why we believe everyone deserves a home that makes them happy. Whether you're furnishing a new house or apartment, or simply looking to update and refresh a few rooms, Overstock has everyday free shipping and amazing deals on the beautiful, high-quality furniture and decor you need to transform any home into the home of your dreams. Overstock, making dream homes come true. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your host, Sam Stone, in studio with me today, Michelle Agenti-Rita. Yes. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. And on the line, Paul McCleary covers major defense programs and acquisition policy for Politico. We're talking, obviously, about what's going on uh, in Israel and Gaza and the effects all around the globe. Uh, Paul, is this creating an opening that China may look to take advantage of or that creates additional concern for Taiwan in that regard? Uh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. The Biden administration is trying to um, at least make the right noises about this in the $106 billion supplemental today for Israel and, and, and Ukraine and other things. There's $2 billion um, for foreign, uh, military financing uh, for Indo-Pacific partners, and there's also money for, for Taiwan to finance U.S. weaponry. But, yeah, I mean, I think the Chinese are seeing... Um, the United States and Europe being uh, consumed with the fight in Ukraine and, and now Israel. Uh, and just like they watched for the 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, while you know China was cranking out destroyers and aircraft carriers and submarines and things like that, um, they can con- kind of continue with that, uh, that, that, that project. Um, there is, I mean, I think they're also probably taking some lessons from the, from the fighting, right? I, in that uh, in, in Ukraine, particularly, that a small country backed up by the West can can fight and can do some real damage 
to a, a larger industrialized nation like Russia. Well, and, and they share a lot of uh, the same technology. Theirs is better for the most part, but the basis of a lot of their military technology is Russian technology, correct? It is. It is. The, the disadvantage the Chinese have, if they were to try something in Taiwan or, you know, during the shooting war in the Pacific, is that they haven't, they haven't fired a shot in anger since the late 70s when they fought Vietnam to a standstill, right? So they have brand new uh, ships and submarines and, and drones and a lot of, and, you know, fourth, fifth generation fighter jets. Um, but as we've seen with Russia and Ukraine, that stuff doesn't always work. You know, you build stuff cheaply and in mass, it's not always going to work the way you want it to. It doesn't and even always work for us. I mean, hence the F-35 yeah. and its continued travails. But yeah, <laughs> exactly. Or the littoral combat ship for the Navy, which yeah. is retiring five years after they, they built some of them. So um, that's not to take away what China's done, but it's a big unknown if this stuff works. Right. Work doing something in an exercise is a lot different than doing it under the stress of, of actual combat. Um, but the United States is trying to bolster allies in the region, you know, trying to uh, make more deals with countries like Vietnam. There's a big push in the Philippines um, to get them more aircraft and more ships and things like that. So um, it is an increasingly complex situation in the Indo-Pacific, uh, and it's kind of unclear where China wants to take this and how, just how, how many things the United States and its allies in the West can juggle at the same time. Reading into some of what kicked off this event in in Israel and Gaza, it looked in the weeks preceding this like there were going to be some fairly historic agreements coming up on the table between Israel and some of the other regional powers there, particularly Saudi and Egypt. We're talking about a large economic corridor for transport. How much are groups like Hamas tuned into those sorts of things? And how much does that affect their decision-making when they launch these type of things? Or was this just something uh, from what you know that they were planning and they were going to do regardless of anything else going on in the world? Yeah, I mean, Hamas had clearly planned this for, for several years. I mean, this was a complex, massive operation that they, they somehow kept, um, kept secret. Uh, but I would think that the agreements that were being reached, um, you know, Israel kind of being accepted slowly and incre incrementally into the larger Middle East community, um, I'm sure that did concern them. Uh, but they also took advantage of an, an Israeli defense force that was uh, completely distracted um, by, I mean, I think they were mo most of the IDF was focused on the West Bank. That's where the Israeli settlers um, and their politicians, the Knesset, had demanded more protection from the IDF. Um, and those are Likud voters, those are Netanyahu people, so the IDF was fully focused on the West Bank. And it was also focused, focused on a lot of internal fighting um, with Netanyahu trying to, to change the constitution and, 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 and exert more control over the courts. You know, there were mass resignations, there were protests within the IDF, uh, from top leadership to the to to regular soldiers, and I've spoken to a few IDF soldiers who said that they were distracted by just internal fights over these political moves by Netanyahu and the rejection of them within the military. So I think they took advantage of that, um, the idea of being focused on the West Bank and the internal struggles in Israel, where they took their eye off uh, off the border there in, um, in, in Gaza, and they clearly took advantage of that and took the Israeli army hours to reach a lot of those communities 
which hadn't, wouldn't have been the case probably just a few years ago. That, that brings up kind of the follow-up question. Is the IDF, regardless of some of these other things going on, have they gotten, you know, sorry to say it this way, but a little soft, a little complacent with the last decade of, of relative quiet? Yeah, I mean, I think whenever things are quiet and there seems to be a status quo, um, most people settle into a routine, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, you watch the border, nothing happens. You, you do that for years at a time, probably settle into, into that routine. Um, but like I said, a lot of those units that were around Gaza like, were pulled out to go over to West Bank, behind the West Bank, and and protect the, the Israeli settlers there. So I think that was it was the confluence of a lot of events, and Hamas pays attention, and they saw it happening, and they, they decided the time was right, I'm sure, with the agreements uh, Israel's making with other countries, and just the kind of the internal chaos and the distraction by the IDF. They figured it was, it was time to go. Who's Hamas's, you know, um, backup? Where, do, where can they rely on for military support uh, and money and finance? Several places. I was speaking to uh, earlier today a few sources in the region who said that the Israelis are, have seen some North Korean components in some of the rockets that have come over from Gaza. Mm. Um, and so they have been pulling a little bit from, and North Korea is happy to solve anybody, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, right. So they've pulled from North Korea. Um, there's been some Iranian help, um, just like with, with Hezbollah. So they, they, they have allies and sources that they can, they, I mean, there's been a blockade of Gaza for years, but they've still managed to smuggle in all this weaponry and all this equipment. So it gets in, and they have some state actors who are, who are helping them out. Fantastic. Paul, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. How do folks stay in touch with you and follow your work? Because obviously, uh, we'd love to have you back on the program. I thought this was a fascinating discussion. I'm sure a lot of folks out there want to stay in tune with the, the work you're doing. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, I write daily, had uh, or multiple times a day, depending on what happens in the <laughs> world. On, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, Politico.com. I'm also on Twitter at Paul McLeary, M-C-L-E-A-R-Y. Um, and if I could remember my Blue Sky and Threads <laughs> handles, I would tell you those, but you could look me up. I need one of those. And They, they can probably find you through your too, Twitter and, and take it away from there, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Paul, thank you so much. We really, really appreciate having you on the program. Uh, Thank you for a fantastic discussion today. And uh, we'll look forward to having you back on to talk about some more of this stuff as, as unfortunately, the world doesn't look like it's getting safer anytime soon. Thank you very much. Okay, folks, make sure you stay tuned. We're going to be coming back with a couple more segments here. Dr. Zudi Jasser, he has an amazing resume, Michelle. I'm interested to hear about this. A challenger to Stanton. It's a it's a blue seat. You got to You got to be ready to fight. I want to hear the strategy. Yeah, me too. All right, folks. Breaking Battlegrounds coming back with more in just a moment. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds, folks. You've been hearing us talk about Y Refi for a while now, and if you haven't gone on their website and checked them out, you need to do it today especially with the stock market as discombobulated as it is. The market's going up, it's going down. World events are are decimating people's bankrolls and their futures. So you need to check out our friends at InvestY Refi. You can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market. All you got to do is go there, invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or give them a call at 888-YREFI24 and tell them Chuck and Sam sent you. 
and you'll do a fantastic uh, thing to help secure your financial future and your family's future. So moving on with our next segment today, uh, we are very excited to talk to recently announced congressional candidate, Dr. Zudi Jasser. Uh, He is running against Greg Stanton here in Arizona. Uh, For folks who don't know, Stanton is the former mayor of Phoenix. He campaigns as a moderate. He governs as an extreme liberal. He did this when he was at the city of Phoenix, when he was on the council and as the mayor. He will talk the, the middle of the road all day long, but he votes the far left lane. But on the other hand, Greg Stanton is a tough competitor. He knows how to campaign. He knows how to to win in these races. And so, Dr. Jasser, thank you for joining us today and welcome to the program. You've got a big hill to climb, but I think you're the type of guy who can climb it. Uh, Tell us a little bit about you and your background first. Well, I uh, served in the Navy for 11 years as a physician. My family uh, immigrated from uh, Syria in the 60s as uh, political refugees and got asylum. Uh, here, I uh, grew up in Wisconsin. Uh, was on a Navy scholarship for medical school and uh, moved here to join my father in practice in '99. My dad was a cardiologist and internal medicine doc here in town, and I've been in primary care, running a small business uh, in uh, Maricopa County, and uh, with mo- most of my patients actually from uh, the district uh, area uh, for now 25 years. And um, been very involved not only in the medical society as a past president of the American, I'm sorry, the Arizona Medical Association, but also um, active on the Maricopa County Board of Health and a number of areas in the community. But also, uh, post 9/11, have been very active in Islamic reform, counterterrorism, and as we see now, it's it's more relevant than ever, and uh, have. Uh, been leading the charge nationally and globally, actually, in Islamic reform and counter-ideology. And I think that it's time for new leadership. It's time for folks that uh, our community trusts and have looked to leadership on a number of issues, not only in healthcare. I mean, through the pandemic, for example, I was one of the few docs to to stand up and say, listen, uh, we shouldn't have these shutdowns that uh, destroy American businesses. We shouldn't be printing money. We should allow the engine of American economy to work and uh, um, for free speech and the ability of uh, American citizens to make their own decisions and not have government make the decisions for them. And I think it's time to to send people like uh, Congressman Stanton back home uh, as they are simply empty suits who talk the talk uh, sometimes when it suits their purposes and campaigns. But the reality is, is he's a rubber stamp for President Biden and also the far-left radical progressivists that are anti-Semitic and un-American. Yeah, and Dr. Dr. Jasser, you have uh, served uh, two terms as a U.S. Senate appointee and vice chair of the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, which I think is actually one of those groups that does really good work that a lot of people don't know about. Uh, We have only about two minutes before we go to break here. We're going to be coming back for more, but tell us a little bit about that experience and what, what your work was there. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Senator McConnell had appointed me based on the recommendation from Senator Kyle back in uh, 2010. It took uh, a year and a half of vetting. I was one of the first appointees that President Obama actually uh, refused to accept, even though it was a Republican seat that should have just been accepted. But uh, the the Islamists across the country did not want me in there. Served for four years. It's an independent body that has nine seats, three from the Senate, three from the House, and three from the White House that is uh, pretty balanced, and it uh, um, provides feedback to the State Department, uh, to appropriations and others about how we spend our money abroad, 
uh, and the fact that America should stand behind um, forces of freedom, religious freedom, protecting minorities, such as, and what I spoke out quite a bit about was the protection of Christian minorities, Jewish minorities across Muslim-majority countries across the planet. In 2013, we went to Egypt. Uh, I uh, confronted the Muslim Brotherhood in meetings at the time. Uh, I went to Saudi Arabia three times and uh, basically uh, told our State Department that they were mistranslating things intentionally to make it seem like the Saudis were more moderate than they were. And, you know, now, fast forward, we realize we need adults in the room, and, and this is some of the experience, I think, that would shape my ability to do a lot more as a member of Congress and, and represent our constituents much better than Congressman Stanton, who really has really very little to show on what he's done in his uh, three terms. Yeah, I you know, for folks who know, I worked at the city of Phoenix while Greg Stanton was mayor there, and quite frankly, he had very little to show for his time at the city of Phoenix. Um, you know, he is he's one of those go-along-to-get-along rubber-stamp votes, and folks are not being well served by him here in, here in Arizona. So we're going to be coming back with more from Dr. Zudi Jasser in just a moment. At Overstock, we know home is a pretty important place, and that's why we believe everyone deserves a home that makes them happy. Whether you're furnishing a new house or apartment, or simply looking to update and refresh a few rooms, Overstock has everyday free shipping and amazing deals on the beautiful, high-quality furniture and decor you need to transform any home into the home of your dreams. Overstock, making dream homes come true. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your hosts, Sam Stone and Michelle Ugenti. Reed in the studio with me today on the line, Dr. Zidi Jasser. He's running uh, for Congress against Greg Stanton. And while we were at the break, Michelle was asking a good question because we're, we're broadcast now across this country, literally from coast to coast. Yes. A lot of people probably have no idea who Greg Stanton is or what this district is we're talking about. Yeah, let them know what the geographical makeup. Yeah, it's a CD4. It includes all of uh, Tempe, most of Mesa, and also Ahwatukee, Phoenix. And demographically, it's a very diverse district uh, with um, various populations uh, um, of the community that include large Hispanic population and and a uh, number of faith representations. And also, you know, the numbers, Republicans should win this district. It's not as democratically blue as it was when Stan got elected. It's now D plus 2%. It was split completely down the center presidential ballot uh, with uh, 49.1 to 49 um, Biden uh, Trump. And uh, right now it registers heavier Republican by uh, uh, three to four percent with a large independent uh, registration. Uh, so it's definitely winnable by a conservative, but by a Republican and uh, with the right candidate and the right background. And uh, that can take Stanton to task. Very competitive district. Yeah, it is. And it, it, it's yeah. funny because it includes a big Mormon population right. in portions of it. But you also have Tempe, where ASU that, is, yeah. which is is very blue mm-hmm. uh, around that. So, uh, Dr. Jasser, we mentioned kind of briefly that you were one of the few physicians in the country who kind of stood up to the COVID restrictions that were rolled out and all the limitations on on people, the lockdowns and everything else. Um Tell how how tough was that? Because there really weren't many physicians who were able or willing to do that at that time, and I think a lot of them I've talked to kind of regret not taking that that tough road that you did. 
Yeah, you know, this is one of the reasons I'm, you know, after being an activist and 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 small business medicine for some time, I'm putting my hat in the ring to politics because I see folks like Stanton in politics and I ask, well, where's their courage? Why, why the demagoguery in which they say one thing privately and do something else publicly? And so many physicians, unfortunately, from Fauci on down, uh, here we have a profession that for a long time, I can tell you in primary care, I'm often trying to push physicians to tell my patients what they should do because they're often giving them a buffet of choices and often are non-committal. And yet, in in the pandemic, we were basically our our profession uh, almost willingly became weaponized in order to tell government that they should shut down businesses, uh, shame uh, gyms and shame uh, uh, restaurants and others into uh, shutting down. I understand initially until we figured out what was going on uh, for four or six weeks, maybe it made sense. But after that, when did America become the most risk-averse country on the planet in which we were basically telling businesses, telling families, somehow I became the only profession that was essential? I mean, healthcare is not the only essential profession. Every family is essential when they want to put, you know, food on the table for their kids and their families. And we then started doing disease trading. I I was telling medical leaders here in Arizona and was uh, on the radio frequently and television saying, listen, you're going to delay the treatment of uh, elective procedures, of cancer screenings, of patients with abdominal pain, asthma attacks, heart attacks and chest pain. And true enough, there's going to be pandemics after the pandemic. And we saw that now. In the last year, so many diseases were delayed. So many uh, treatments were traded for that one virus. It didn't make sense from a public health perspective. It didn't make sense from an American choice perspective. Let families make their own decisions. And yet politicians locked us up, told us that that they couldn't go to work. And I was talking to so many people in the district that were saying they wanted to work. And they were being forced to wear masks, and sometimes they didn't disagree. They disagreed with that. They were suppressed in their free speech. They couldn't speak out against what government was mandating. And uh, it's just from every perspective. I think the people of this district especially, that includes ASU and other places where free speech should be a big part of who we are, I think there's going to be a a large pushback in this election. Uh, As we're seeing, for example, even on the left with RFK's uh, um, candidacy and others, there's folks that are really fed up with government controlling so many aspects of our of our lives. Yeah, well, I was going to say, I mean, COVID to me was about control. I think you really hit the nail on the head there about control. How do you see the campaign um, moving forward right now? Are you the only Republican in the race? No, we've got a contested primary against Kelly Cooper. And okay. uh, I've I've not met uh, Kelly. Look forward to uh, a uh, challenge, challenging him. Uh, you know, last time uh, he had his uh, hat in the ring and uh, unfortunately lost by 12 points. So I think it's time for a new candidate, new um, platforms. And uh, I think we've, we can uh, uh, hit Staten with a much broader uh, and I think uh, diverse portfolio, if you will, for the constituents to, uh, um, you know, appeal to. Yeah, and, and and for folks again who don't know, outside of Arizona, Kelly Cooper, a local businessman, owns a, a, a handful of restaurants here locally. Uh, you know, certainly he he you know did as well as he could in that run, but it was still a twelve point margin. That's a tough seat, but I think it does take 
a little bit more experience. And maybe he could bring that in a second run, but you come to the table with that here for your first run. Yes, and I think it's, you know, this is the issue. Is that I, I believe in meritocracy. That's what America is all about. And uh, have the voters decide, you know, who is not only the best for their district, but the best to bring change and new leadership. Because it's not just about um, being able to check a box and, and become a congressperson, but it's what's best for the district, what's best for the state, the country. I think the Republican Party needs um, a, a bit of a, a new branding, if you will, as far as uh, uh, diversity. And, and uh, you know, we look on the far left, you've got extremists like Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib. And uh, I think uh, the, the party of immigrants, legal immigrants, is the Republican Party. And uh, that's really the story that uh, and the reason I believe in this country. And, and I've been so honored to, and privileged to be able to um, serve in, in so many different ways in the past uh, uh, few decades. And I think another com- uh, important component of this race coming up will be turnout. So we're coming into a, uh, a presidential election. And that's not what obviously last uh, election cycle was. That was a midterm cycle. So there may be an opportunity to get this seat if you see our side, our Republican side, really build out our turnout, um, the groundswell. And with Biden doing such a horrible job, I mean, that in a weird way, there's a gift there. If we can capitalize on it and see if we can't um, win some of these more competitive seats. Amen. And and uh, this is one of the reasons I felt, you know, sort of uh, carpe diem, you know, seize the moment now, because mm-hmm. if you look, um, I, I became a conservative in high school uh, right after the Carter administration and uh, saw what inflation was doing. I was, was a Reagan conservative uh, in junior high, and that's when I started to do my first volunteer work. And so much of this seems the same to me, is that you see a huge swing because people are uh, working twice as much to make the same money. Uh, they are uh, realizing that we're, we're losing strength. We had hostages in 79 that were taken by Iran, and now we're seeing Iran fueling another war in the Middle East. Same thing is that uh, nature abhors a vacuum. There's been a vacuum of American influence, not only uh, domestically, economically, but globally, militarily. And uh, I think people, you, you are going to see a conservative wave. And this district, uh, Governor Ducey won by six points in the current polling of the current district. So with the right candidate, this district can be won. And uh, um, and I think it's only been lost in the past because, uh, you know, good candidates might have said, oh, it's all, it's too solid for Stanton, but it's just not true. I think that uh, toe-to-toe. Well, pre-2020, uh, though, the district legitimately was tougher because you had, he had more of central Phoenix wrapped into it, right? So it was... redistricting now. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And that's why the numbers I gave you about uh, Ducey's margin, uh, the Republican margin registration of 5 to 6% is all post-2020 uh, redistricting. Mm-hmm. So one of, the, one of the challenges I think you're going to face and other candidates, you, you've got an amazing background, amazing record, um, <clears throat> is getting that out to the public in, in, a, in a year when people are talking about Arizona potentially being the, having the most political spending of any state in the country. I mean, people are talking about maybe five to eight hundred million dollars plus in political advertising spent just here in Arizona in this cycle. And obviously, you're running for Congress. You're not going to have 50 or 100 million dollars to get your message out. How do you get across to voters 
who you are and who you you know what your background is so that they have an they can make an informed decision well i think it's exactly what i've been doing for 25 years in primary care is you know you you meet people you engage them and then they feel they can trust you and and want to invest in your message and uh, feel that you will serve their interest transparently and and do the best possible to uh uh, advance the interests of the district. So, uh, you know, I think ultimately as they hear that message, they'll want to invest in that future because uh, I think most of the voters are looking for new leadership. They don't want the same old failure uh, that's been happening with the Democrats. They, they see that the Biden administration and the rubber stamps like Stanton have brought them nothing. And I think ultimately you're right. It is going to take uh, a bit of fuel. Uh, Stanton is uh, not only an empty suit, but he's not as good a fundraiser as you know, the uh, folklore has. Yes, the DCCC dumped a, a lot of money into the last uh, few months of uh, his campaign, uh, but that's really most of, where most of his money came from. And I think ultimately this is my first run for political office, and I think people will be refreshed at uh, seeing a, a new candidate who can bring new leadership for uh, the district and ultimately want to invest in that and, and uh, be able to uh, produce. Very good. Uh, Dr. Jasser, one of one of the things here on your resume, I, I got to ask you about, well, two things, but I'm going to start I'm going to start with the easy one first. Uh, you were a recipient of the Meritorious Service Medal for service to the office of the attending physician of the U.S. Congress. Tell us a little bit about that, because that's that's pretty darn cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, my um, I uh, served as a physician uh with the Navy for uh, 11 years. Um, my last billet was as a physician to Congress. I was chief resident at Bethesda Naval Hospital, at, which also includes NIH. And by the way, Fauci was one of our uh, attendings out there. And after I was chief <laughs> did, did resident, he actually uh, did he actually like treat patients? Sometimes he did a lot of research, got a lot of grants, <laughs> and yeah, he's a smart. That's he's a, a smart guy. Um, but uh, obviously, became a, a politician instead of a sort of. As, as an academic uh, professor, if you will. Um, but then my last billet was the head of internal medicine at Bethesda Naval Hospital, then became the admiral for the attending physician of Congress. And um, he asked me to join him. There are two junior internists that are staff physicians to Congress. Uh, and I served there for uh, a little over two years. And after that service, I received the Meritorious Service Medal. And part of it was in recognition. I don't know if you remember, but in July 24th, 1998, uh, Russell Weston Jr. shot his way into the U.S. Capitol and killed uh, three Capitol Hill police officers. And I was the only physician that responded to that. It was 20 yards from our medical clinic. And um, we did advanced trauma life support on the police officers. And uh, um, unfortunately, they didn't make it. We did get them to the hospital, but uh, it was the closest I got to terrorism directly, if you will, with the four corpsmen and I that responded to that. And I talk about it, by the way, in detail on my book, uh, A Battle for the Soul of Islam, and uh, uh, a lot of uh, uh, time on service. I was uh, a member of the USS El Paso, served in uh, Operation Restore Hope in 93 and, in Somalia, and uh, was part of that uh, deployment. So, so last question before we let you go here today. You are a father of three uh, your children are ages 21, 19, and 15, which means by the time it's all over, you will have had a teenager in your house for the better part of a decade and a half. Can anything prepare you as well to, for the battles in Congress as that? 
Exactly. This is, uh, you know, it, it's the the teens today, especially, you know, post-COVID, are, my, my poor kids were stuck at home. So it made my wife and I were like, this makes no sense. Why are they at home? COVID doesn't affect them. You're, you're, you're affecting the next generation for no reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had to stare at a screen instead of socialization, and it was just the worst decision Absol- public health could have made. Absolutely. And, uh, Folks. Uh, you can check out Dr. Zudi Jasser at Z4FORZFORAZ.com. Check him out. Go on there. Breaking Battlegrounds is going to be back on the air next week. And we'll look forward to, as this campaign unfurls, learning yeah. more about Dr. Jasser and his positions. Back next week. The 2022 political field was intense, so don't get left behind in 2024. If you're running for political office, the first thing on your to-do list needs to be securing your name on the web with a yourname.vote web domain from GoDaddy.com. Get yours now. Welcome to the Breaking Battlegrounds podcast with your host, Sam Stone. In the studio with me today, Michelle Ugenti-Rita. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us Happy once to be again. Here. Uh, and someone on the line right now that I'm excited to talk to because mm. it's I love finding out about issues I know nothing about, Mm -hmm. but that are potentially actually really impactful for folks. And so, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have Rick Van Meter on right now. Uh, He is uh, the executive director of the Coalition for App Fairness, a bipartisan congressional effort aimed to address anti-competitive policies from big tech companies, Apple and Google. And, yeah, they are really vicious in their Frankly, their agenda in their agenda and their exclusion of all potential competitors. They have created these landscapes that are almost impossible to avoid and that they control totally. So, Rick, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. We're uh, Coalition for App Fairness is a a group of about 70 app developers uh, from all over the world. Some big companies like Spotify, Epic Games, Match Group, but uh, also a lot of smaller kind of mom and pop uh, app developers with with one or two employees. Um, so, but what what unites us all is that we're all fighting these anti-competitive practices, which come through the app stores, uh, which are you know holding back innovation and, and creating a lot of consumer harm. So, uh, look looking forward to discussing this with you all. So, how did this come about? I mean, I, I it, we know that they have developed these ecosystems, and I think when you look at some of the antitrust issues behind it, um, it's this exclusion of app developers and other software developers from their platforms. Given that Apple and Google essentially dominate the the mobile uh, mobile phone and mobile device market, how were they able yeah. to, to do that uh, legally? Well, to your point, uh, this really came about because of the fact that Apple and Google came to dominate the mobile uh, the mobile internet, if you will. So, uh, if you think back, you know, ten, thirteen years ago, you had a lot of different choices for smartphones. You 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 had iPhones. There were Android devices. Uh, Windows had a phone. There was Windows Phone. There were Nokia's. There were uh, Blackberries, and at that time, develop uh, kind of the the hardware companies were competing for developers to uh, create products and software or apps for their their devices because they they lured customers uh, to their products. So, you know, if, 
if, if you've got yeah, cool if, apps on iPhones, you, you want to yeah, buy an yeah, iPhone. That's right. that's why I originally wanted to buy an iPhone. It's not just for the color the... of your texts. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, somebody, you know, at first I had no interest in having an iPhone. Then I had a friend who had one and he was showing me Pandora and Google Maps. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I thought all these things were really, that it was because of the software on the phones uh, that made it desirable. Uh, and then now you've basically got a system where, two companies not only control 100% of the market share, but within that market share, there's no going back and forth. It's not like uh, Coke and Pepsi, where one day you're going to buy Coke and maybe next week you're going to buy Pepsi. Once you have an iPhone, you're locked into that Apple ecosystem and you can't get Android apps on your your iPhone and vice versa. So it's really kind of a siloed... um, ecosystem where they have total control uh, over developers and and ultimately over what consumers can put on their phone and what they can't have on their phone. I mean, really, it's sort of for consumers a digital prison that, you know, you, you have you can roam freely within the walls of the prison that Apple or Google create for you, but you're dependent on them to expand it to go anywhere else. Yeah, that's exactly right. And for for developers, uh, where this is a problem is, is you know, on, on, you can't get your software to a consumer on their phone without going through the Apple App Store. Mm-hmm. And they use that basically as a choke point to impose all of these other crazy things. So, Like what? What, they, are, what are some of the things that they do? So, for example, uh, one of the major concerns of our member companies is that they, one thing that they will do is they will say, they categorize you if you sell goods through the app. So they say you're either physical goods or digital goods. And why that matters, I have no idea. But if if you sell digital goods, they say you have to use our uh, payment processor to process credit card payments. So Apple Pay on the Apple devices and Google on Google devices. They both do this the exact, pretty much the exact same way. Um, so... Uh, and they charge a 30% commission to process those payments. You know, whereas a standard credit card processing uh, fee is like three to 5%. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and you know, this it, is for digital goods, but it like, it, correct. so I'm I, like, if someone orders from whatever restaurant app, uh, you know, Grubhub or whatever, they don't pay that same level of fee. They don't. And, and actually, that's a good example because this is a good. A point on you know kind of the arbitrary nature of this of this uh, determination by the two companies. So things like Grubhub, I don't believe are they're categorized as physical goods because they say you're getting a you know food you know it's a physical right. thing. Uh, whereas the companies themselves, like Grubhub, might argue, well, we're just a platform. You know, we're we're just software. We're connecting drivers and restaurants and customers they and, yeah they make that argument extensively <laughs> legally do. yeah they do yeah uber is another example where uh, apple and google have said uber is a physical good because you're getting a, a ride so when you pull up your uber app you say where you want to go uh, but then you have a choice on how you want to pay you can pay with apple pay or google pay you can use your credit card which they use a, a third-party processor to process that payment you can use Venmo, PayPal. You can even use your SkyMiles. 
Uh, but if you're using a dating app or if you want a, a streaming service, something that they determine to be digital, you don't have a choice. You have to use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and the company has to pay that 30% commission. So you know when you're talking about 30% commission, it, that's a huge amount of money, especially for small companies you know, that are up and coming and trying to get started to pay 30% of their revenue to Apple and Google who have provided no value um, for the developer. So uh, but what do like they say all they... other business expenses, that ultimately gets added into the cost of the products you know, that they have to consider. What does Apple and Google say in response to that? There must be a justification that they rely on. Sure. Yeah. They, what they will say is that these are our customers. Um, and uh, if you, because they're using an iPhone, they are Apple's customers. Mm. Of course, Spotify might say our customers too. You know, just because you, uh, that would be like if, um, if you use your Toyota Camry to drive through a, a drive through at McDonald's and then uh, uh, Toyota wanting 30% of the sale of the McDonald's food because they're, a Toyota customer. I mean, there's just there's just different things. Right. Uh, you can be a Spotify customer and an, an Apple iPhone customer, I, but but Apple takes kind of a, a controlling view of that is their customer. Rick, Rick um, I, I got to tell you, if you want to write to sell anything to them, you have to pay us a commission. I, I don't want you to give these car companies any ideas right now <laughs> while they're looking at yeah. at this. This this is yeah. a familiar issue. Has there been legislation? Uh, Regarding this, this sounds like something I've I've seen uh, introduced yes. um, at the state uh, level and maybe even at the federal level. Yeah, so several different states have attempted um, to pass uh, legislation that I would say is, is very narrow and kind of one one part of this issue, which is the payments issue. Right. So essentially, That's saying that, that you uh, you can't force developers to use your payment processor. If they want to use something different, they have to be able to do it. That should be fairly uh, common sense. Uh, you know, any other business uh, can choose uh, how to accept payment. You know, there are many businesses that are cash only. There are other businesses that are no cash. Uh, some businesses accept checks, some do not. You know, for, for brick and mortar stores, that's, that's always the option. Uh, so that should be the option online as well. Um, that has not, I, I don't believe that has passed in any state. And in, in large part, because there was federal legislation introduced about two years ago, um, bipartisan in the Senate by Senators, uh, Marsha Blackburn and Richard Blumenthal. Um, it did get a bit of traction in the past last Congress. It passed out of the Senate Judiciary Committee 20 to two, so nearly unanimously um and it's a little bit broader than just that payments issue it would also basically say that um developers can offer you know their apps and services outside of the app store uh, uh, so that would make it basically work on your phone exactly the way you get software on your desktop computer or laptop where you can go through the official app store to get software or you can go directly to a developer's website and, and download it um, directly from there. So we people do this all the time. It's uh it's very common. If you if you buy a new computer, uh, which I did recently, 
I went to Microsoft's website to get Microsoft Office, you know, Outlook, Word. Um, I, I went to Zoom's website to get, you know, to download the Zoom mm-hmm. app. I went to Spotify's website to download the Spotify app. This would essentially remove Apple and Google as the internet gatekeepers, you know, for mobile devices um, and just make it work like your your desktop computer or laptop. And I suspect they're vehemently opposed. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, that might be an understatement. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the big tech companies, uh, I think last year spent, uh, according to Bloomberg, they spent over $300 million um, in advertising um, against this bill and several others, you know, kind of big tech reforms. Uh, and they spent an additional, I think, $90 million in lobbying. Um <laughs> Which is which is just insane. I mean, it's it's it might be the most uh, ever spent on you know, a lobbying campaign. Well, it tells you how lucrative campaign. this must be. Yeah, I mean, from my understanding, for Apple and Google now, they're both basically trending towards being essentially subscription services, and that revenue being a much more significant portion of their business than hardware or other uh, other services or, or that kind of thing. So. This points sure. right at their intended business model, right? Right. Yes. And, and one of the arguments that they make all the time is this is our business model, uh, to which we say, well, you're, you're, just because it's your business model doesn't mean that it's right or doesn't mean that it's legal. Yeah, it, so, it, it can uh, still be monopolistic and anti-competitive. I mean, we've right. had plenty of businesses that have engaged in very predatory practices like that. Rick, we have just about two minutes left. What are the current... Um, what is the current status of that legislation? What are you guys trying to get done? And how can folks support your work doing that? Well, the current state of the legislation is that we're hoping it will be reintroduced in the House and Senate uh, shortly. Um, you know, the, the best thing folks can do uh, is to contact their members of Congress, their senators, their House members, and encourage them to support this issue. We actually have a, a function on our website, which is appfairness.org. Um, and you can you can go there and you can enter your address and information and it will help you contact, you know, send a message to your your representatives and uh, senators. But there, there's a lot of more information there. So I would encourage folks to go to our website again, appfairness.org and uh, to contact your lawmakers and tell them to support the Open Apps Market Act. Oh, That's correct. Or, uh, or similar yes. legislation. And they and there can be a push to get some of this done. Uh, at the state level also, I mean, it might not be as effective, but at the same time, we've seen states have a major impact on corporations like these when they pass these Absolutely. laws. Absolutely. Because all of a sudden, they, they either have to start creating a patchwork system or they have to follow the, what that state is, is leading. That's right. Yeah. If a, if a state were to pass it and, and folks in other states would see that it works and it's effective, it helps lower prices and probably have a lot of app developers moving to that state. Um, yeah, it, it, it could grow from there. So mm-hmm. we, we definitely would not discourage that at all. Fantastic. Rick Van Meter, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate having you on the program. Folks, uh, make sure you check them out and at the Coalition for App Fairness and the Open Apps Market Act. I'm going to trip over that if I try to say it right. again. But thank you again, Rick, so much for joining us. We really appreciate having you on the program. And I look forward to getting an update, hopefully down the road when this moves forward. That sounds great. Thanks for having me. Perfect. Thank you. 
All right, Michelle. I, I want to thank Rick Van Meter for his time on the program. Really appreciate having him. But I got to got to get to something that, folks, if you're outside of Arizona, you're probably rolling your eyes because this is a little bit of an Arizona-heavy episode. But at the same time, um, there is one of these organizations in your state, too. And if you're not aware of who they are and the work they're doing to undermine public education, quite frankly, you should be. We're talking about the Arizona School Boards Association there is a National School Boards Association. There there are basically branches in every state. These are hard left organizations that pretend to be nonpartisan. When they're the exact opposite. When they're the exact exactly. opposite. Now, I mean, they are they are so far lefty. Remember, these are the ones they got in big trouble around some of the trans stuff. They got big trouble around some of the COVID stuff. These organizations are. They're like an arm of the the. The teachers union. Yeah, the teachers union yeah. is exactly right. And and they control, by the way, this is where schools get their superintendents from. Right. If this you, is where they're farmed. Right. If you wonder where your superintendent came from, who put them up for that job, it was your local school board association or your state or your national. So they have a huge influence on what happens with schools. Mm-hmm. Which makes this week's news in Arizona just a little bit more entertaining. <laughs> So, Michelle, it came out today that the Arizona School Boards Association hired as their executive director a ridiculous nutjob commie Democrat. <laughs> um, perfect for them. Yeah, perfect for them, but who lied on his resume. Aww. And doesn't have a college degree. Well, oopsies. Now, he has put this on multiple res- applications and resumes, not only for this, but he tried to get a Maricopa supervisor, you know, uh, uh, supervisor seat. He applied oh, for that. Oh, as yeah. an appoint as, yeah, an, as appointee? an appointee, and he didn't get it. But he had that on his resume when he applied for that. He served as a temporary appointee in the state legislature as a far left dem, and he had it on his resume there. But then this fool had had gone on. So it was working for him. It was working for him, except that he went on some friend's podcast in 2020 and told the truth. Well, why would you do that? I don't know. They're it's not gonna... that smart at the end of the day. Oh, my goodness. Seriously. Like, so here's the thing. Like, I don't even care that he doesn't have a college degree. Right. What does that matter? Right. But why'd you lie about it? Yeah. What? What is it? Again, why does it matter? And then the school board is being called out. They they found out about it. What are they going to do? Have they said anything? They, they, they have a lawyer looking into it, right, who came away with, okay, no, he didn't go to college. Um, but more to the point. They weren't then going to. They were going to sweep this under the rug and yeah. just go on. And they're paying him, by the way, two hundred and fifteen thousand dollars a year. Is are you really? Yeah, for to be the executive director for the state school board association, which, by the way, is a cakewalk of a job. I mean, what are you doing? What, I mean, you're you're coordinating your you're coordinating some meetings each year. They have like a monthly meeting, and then they have an annual meeting. You're, I'm sure you're coordinating those, and you're coordinating messaging. And, you know, you're you're recruiting candidates to to come be school leaders. It's not a two hundred thousand dollar job. You know, what's this organization even doing? I mean, beyond just the executive director position. Why do they exist? Yeah, that's right. There's like a broader question there. Why do they exist? They have been nothing but a thorn in the side of students, parents. And they're paid for legislature. They're paid for with tax money. 
Right, because these are this is this is an association, and the school boards pay dues. Yeah, the yeah. schools are all members. The districts are members. The school boards pay dues. So, I mean, these are and te- they work against the interests of students and of parents and of hardworking teachers who just want to, you know, get in the classroom and and teach. Yeah, and folks, again, this isn't just Arizona. This is going on. Hey, they may not have hired a, a liar in every other state. <laughs> they, I don't know. <laughs> possible in at least a few of them but i mean but this is going on everywhere and why does you ask the right question michelle why does this organization exist what is the point well when this happens a lot of times they consolidate right and there's just a lot more power and control when you can consolidate the school boards and then have everybody in lockstep in unison saying the same thing the same way and it looks like there's a, a much bigger support for your message when it's all coordinated by a select few yeah so so to your point the school board associations actually put out and train all the school board members at all the different schools on their approved agenda and the school board should be like what approved agenda? I'm a school board member. I will approve our agenda for, you know, our district. But you have the association wanting to combine all of that and take advantage of of the control that you get when everybody's saying the same thing. This it, is all about propaganda pushing. Isn't that even like entirely the point of having independent school boards? Yeah, what's for, a, that's right. Exactly. Like, Because otherwise, wouldn't you just elect a state school board that was these people, basically? Why do we have 200 plus districts? Right. Right. Yeah. Because otherwise, again, this this throws out the entire notion of local control disappears. I mean, this is a one size fits all for education. And that's the exact opposite um, that those at the local level like to say they support, which is something that's far more connected to the local districts and those that, you know, are in school. It's really amazing what's going on with our public schools. Like I'm not I used to a few years ago. And tell me if you agree or disagree. But a few years ago, I, I I was like, no, we can turn this around. We can save them. I'm kind of at the point, like, just tear it down and start over because they're just such a disaster. You know, I have three kids in public school and it's it's there's there's a lot of great moments. The problem the problem is there's so much fear and there's they've abandoned um, independence. They've abandoned their teachers. They're, you know, teachers can't do what they want in their classroom. They're so, everyone's being watched and they're really been exploited. And now this is an area where they can get to your kids before you can. And, um, you know, there's a distrust. You don't, you know, I, I, that's how I feel as a parent. I drop my kids off and I am like, I hope you're te- teaching the basics. How much of this do you think I, I've always wondered about this, but how much of the hardcore left movement in schools, which has gotten way worse in the last decade or two, how much of that has come from a combination of helicopter parents and endemic lawsuits from those parents? Right. I, I think a lot. I mean, it's kind of a defense mechanism against is. that, isn't it? Like the way they're they're doing it. Well. I, I just think that schools have gotten way too outside their scope. I'll give you a a good example. So the local school district that I live in, they have, I I think the last time I looked at the numbers, it was like 37,000 students. Mm -hmm. Um, They deliver 90,000 meals a day. 
Yeah, yeah, right. So exactly, like they're you know they're address you know they're 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 addressing food and mental well being and you know education and um, sex and and you know personal health issues and they're just getting way too big and they're becoming way too integral into like your your student and your child's life when they just need to be talking about math science reading writing but this is a way to get to your kids that's what's so sad you know it i think there's a lot of sometimes good intentions gone wrong in in a lot of the stuff right but at the end of the day i think they've just made themselves so vulnerable to this sort of marxian philosophy where they have just decided we're going to take over the schools and miseducate the children in the way we want, and that's going to change the, the world and the way we see it. And they may not be wrong is, is what worries me. Well, the good news is if you have parents who you know, are active in a child's life, then a lot of this stuff can be combated. I, I find that the problem is when you have schools that have an agenda and are, are looking to exploit and then – you know, parents and caregivers who aren't as... Some of the narratives, though, seem worse than that. Like the anti-police narrative, the anti-Israel one. At the school level? Yeah. Yeah. Like, these things are societally destructive. I mean, you talk to Democrats, you've heard this a lot this week. Israel is an apartheid state. Well, it's empirically not. Um, The people of Gaza are prisoners. They are empirically not. Um, it's an occupation. They hadn't set foot inside Gaza since two- Israel had not set foot inside Gaza since 2005. The blockade is not a blockade. It's basically a checkpoint where they try to limit the number of weapons that come in via the sea. So they're just checking the cargo ships. It's essentially a port control. Well, I mean, but, but we're, we're talking about something that I don't really know needs to even be discussed in school. I mean, maybe, yeah. you know, maybe you want to... Uh, acknowledge it but in terms of talking about the complexities of the issue I mean those are conversations that are probably best for home uh, and really has no relevancy in your arithmetic class it's, it's also I think the age at which you're exposing kids to some well, of that's those true. I mean is it a second grader you know are right. you talking about high school that was one of my complaints do you remember um, the old La Raza studies issues yeah, here right. in the state yes. right uh-huh. um and one of my issues, I read through those books and I was like, you know, all, this all material is good when you're in college and you can mm-hmm. question your teachers mm-hmm. and you don't have to assume they're right about everything. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't work when you're in high school. And the default for most kids is, well, if the teacher says that, then that's true. Like, well, as I you mean, get that, older, you learn that that may not really be the case. Well, that's such a good point because I had this come up with, with my kids. Um, they were given ID badge. They, 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 you know, they have an ID badge. And um, this year, there was a chip put into it so that when you got off the bus, if you rode the bus, I mean, it would it would log when you got on and off the bus. And I whole punched them out um, and said, you know, you can have the ID, but not with a tracking chip in there. And my, my kids were like, Mom, it's not. I'm like, what do you mean it's not? They're like, well, that's because the principal went on the loudspeaker and said it wasn't. And I'm like, so? Yeah. It, ju- tell me why, how, when it logs it's, it's where you're located. It's an RFID chip. Yeah. yeah. Lo- how it logs where, where and when you're located, that's not tracking. I go, did it measure your weight? <laughs> right. They're like, but it's mom. They said it's not tracking. I'm like, no, honey, I, I know. But what's the justification? To your point, 
they just took it. Right. And we had to spend, you know, I had to spend 45 minutes unwinding that and, and helping them understand that that's not the case. And let's use logic and let's work backwards from that statement and see if we can justify it. And you can't. A perfect example we dealt with at the city of Phoenix was around the traffic cameras, the red light uh-huh. cameras and that sort of thing. So the city told us for years that these things only take a still photo uh, or video when a car goes through illegally, okay. right? And they told us that over and over and over. Here, here's what we get. They even showed us the, the videos and the photos. Uh-huh. They're like, this is all we have. It doesn't show anything else. We get into it and bring someone from that company in and put them up on the, you know, on the dais mm-hmm. where they're now they're afraid to perjure themselves. Right. Right. Because it goes on, on public record. record and, mm-hmm. and so we start asking them those questions. And it's like, well, no. So the camera's always running. It's running 24-7 facial recognition. It's running 24-7 license plate recognition. It's running geolocation data. And all of that's gathered. But we don't give that to the city. Right. But you can subpoena it. (laughs) Yeah, but but, but what do you do with it? Oh, we sell it. Yeah. And what are, are they selling data on your kids? That's that's what I was saying. Was, what was the what was the purpose of it? Did they tell you the purpose? Well, what what's the harm? Well, no. You see, you guys, you're not looking at it the right way. It's your autonomy. It's your privacy. You shouldn't have to justify why you want to keep it that way. They should have to justify why there's some overarching interest um, that makes a compelling one that makes it so they can take it from you. Um, but yeah, but if you just believe everyone at first blush, particularly in the K through twelve world, God only knows you know what you're gonna. Yeah, well, they they, they will look <laughs> you're you, gonna come out as they will look you straight in the face. Yeah, I know, and just blatantly yeah. tell you the sky's you know not yeah. blue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like we don't base our curriculum on on CRT. Really? Right. <laughs> right. That's not a tracking device. It's not. Right. Interesting. Uh, folks, thank you so much for tuning in again today. We really appreciate having you join us on the program. Make sure you share this with your friends. Share the podcast around. That's how we know you're actually interested in the things we're, we're yapping about here. And it's worth coming into the studio every week to do this. So, again, thank you for joining us for Chuck. This is Sam for Michelle. I'll let you say goodbye to the movie. Yeah, please share it. And we appreciate the listeners out there and everyone. Have a great weekend.